Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy. It's not a gender. That was a good amount of pep. Thanks. Uh, we revisited uh, some earlier episodes and we were listening to our intro and we had a lot more pep back in the day. And Bringing uh, the pep back. And as 2023. <laughs> Uh, this is much like the Nintendo of the 90s, our childhood. This is episode 64. Um, we, we only watched four Smackaroonies this week. Busy week. The play, friggin' playoffs. Oilers. Take up all our time. Kylie, Kylie thirsting after Dreisaitl. Uh, <laughs> he's beautiful. Maybe he's a fan of the show. Dreisaitl, if you're listening. Mwah. If you're in an open relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We, as of this episode dropping, we will know if the Oilers have made it to the next stage in the playoffs. But right now. We don't. We don't. Um, There's a game tonight. And then hopefully a game seven on Tuesday that we crush. But it is, it is getting in the way of our movie watching. Really? Still doing it. Still doing it because, you know, gotta gotta support the boys. But uh, the boys with the sticks on the ice with the blades. (laughs) Yes. And the pucks and the jerseys. Yes. In other exciting news, a little bit of a teaser. We have a daddy deep dive coming out. It'll be coming out sometime in the next two weeks. It'll be dropping on a Sunday. But uh, we sat down with a good buddy of ours and talked about one of our favorite movies. So and one of her favorite movies. Well, of course, of course. Our collective, the collective. Hour. Yes, exactly. Um, so keep your uh, keep a lookout for that. <laughs> and if you want to make sure that you've seen the movie, um, just keep putting the lotion on the skin. Yeah, or you might, you might get the hose, you hose get again. The hose again. Okay, let's get into the macaroonies. We kick things off with a mystery movie pick from yours truly, uh, and. I picked the 1994 comedy crime drama Chungking Express. It was written and directed by Wong Kar Wai. 
It stars Bridget Lin as Woman in Blonde Wig. Uh, Takeshi Kaneshiro as Hizuu Cop 223. Uh, Tony Lung as Cop 663. Fei Wang as Fei. Valerie Chow as Air Hostess. And Piggy Chan as Manager of Midnight Express. Uh, The synopsis is two melancholy Hong Kong policemen fall in love. One with a mysterious female underground figure, the other with a beautiful and ethereal waitress at a late night restaurant he frequents. I was very excited to watch this. This is our second Wong Kar Wai film. We've we've watched and covered In the Mood for Love on the podcast. So I was excited, I was very excited to dive into this. What do you think of Chungking Express? It was really different than I thought it was going to be. What do you think it was going to be? I don't know, but it just it's really revered. It's really well regarded. I guess I didn't know that like Wong Kar Wai is like a romance guy. Yeah, this solidified that for sure. Yeah, after In the Mood for Love in this, I'm like, oh, like he loves love. Yeah, and like Homeboy's really great with it. Yeah, but I like I didn't know that's what this was going to be about. And based on the cover, it's not necessarily what I thought it was going to be about. Mm-hmm. And then I also didn't know that it was two stories, so I was a little confused. Mm. I wonder what it would have been like had I known that because I really wasn't all that into the first story. And because I didn't know there was going to be a second story, I'm like, I got to watch this for two hours. <laughs> like, I'm not really a film noir, hard-boiled detective, femme fatale. That's not really my genre. Right. Um, but the second story, I was all in. Slam dunk. And the second story has such, this came out in 1994. It has the roots of what in the 2000s became the manic pixie dream girl Mm -hmm. mania yes that i have to you know be honest in 2000s i was really into i wanted to be a manic pixie dream girl didn't you either wanted one or you wanted to be one or both yeah um and yet Faye, who seems like a prototype of a manic pixie dream girl has a lot more agency, I feel, than what we typically see mm-hmm. in those depictions in North American cinema. Um, so it was kind of Twin Peaks effecty mm-hmm. of being like, oh, I didn't, I had no idea that this was going to be this like super quirky romance that's like got some Amelie vibes. It's got some like 500 Days of Summer vibes, but this is the original. Yeah. And and it's doing so much more. I mean, I haven't seen Amelie in a really long time, but it's doing so much more than 500 Days of Summer is for sure or Garden State is or anything like that. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, I agree. The first story, <clears throat> it had some really good comedic bits. The pineapples. Yeah, the pineapple stuff, like the Cop 223 stuff with yes. him when he was, when he, we had his voiceover and... Just kind of getting into him, into his backstory a little bit was pretty funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but I agree. This movie kicked into gear as soon as we got into the second story, which I didn't, again, I didn't know. I didn't read the synopsis beforehand, which lays it out pretty clearly that we're going to be seeing two stories. Mm-hmm. The second story just hit for me. I thought it was so good. It, it was funny. It was sweet. It was strange. It was sexy. Um. Yeah, there's and like there's some really great sequences like there's the kind of signature Wong Kar Wai 
reduce shutter speed movement stuff that feels very kind of ethereal and dreamlike that that's homaged in everything everywhere all at once um also we got two babely babes in tony lung and fei wong yeah they are second story both like if i had seen this movie when i was in that like early high school late junior high stage i would have been very confused about whether i wanted to be fey or date fey <laughs> right probably a little bit of both but she's just so cool but then she's also really fucking weird <laughs> yes and you're like all right um but like weird in such a manic pixie dream girl charming way yes um which is so strange to see in like early 90s right mm-hmm. because that feels like such a north american 2000s archetype yes that has been so like people have obsessed over it at the time it's been so critiqued now now it's made fun of um strange to see it in this very different context very different time period Mm -hmm. because this movie holy shit it feels like a 90s movie yes it does wonderfully 90s Mm -hmm. yeah the 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 way that it's filmed the tone even though it's like it's not set in north america it has just the vibes of north american movies in the 90s yeah but he's doing it better truly yeah i also uh i gotta i gotta mention the music choices in here there's two needle drops that drop the needle multiple times <laughs> in this movie. Um, let's uh, fingers crossed that you like the songs California Dreamin' and Dreams by the Cranberries. I actually really like both of those songs. Yeah, so I was like totally cool. With it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I could see how if um, this movie was kind of the first time you really heard those songs, you wouldn't be able to divorce them from this movie. But those yeah. are two songs. I feel like I've heard California Dreamin' In cinema a lot. Mm-hmm. But Dream... I just like the Cranberries. Dreams makes me think of the Lindsay Lohan parent trap. Ah, uh, not me. Because as soon as, like, American Lindsay Lohan goes to London, I believe that Dreams is playing oh, while, that sounds right. while she's driving through the streets and, like, oh, Big Ben, whoa. <laughs> it was my sister's grad song. It's a good song. Yeah. It's really good. I like Linger better, but... Or Zombie, Zombie. I like... um salvation I, I, oh look at elliot with his like deep cut cranberries. yeah oh i like this one that no one's ever heard of <laughs> it's on the, i feel like it's on their greatest hits albums so it's <laughs> it just turns out i've only listened to the three most popular cranberry songs as i'm like i really like the cranberries i.e the three songs that play in everything ever <laughs> and that's okay cranberries slap but i like how there's two songs that reference dreams in, the, in their titles in this. And then Wong Kar Wai, his filmmaking style, does have a bit of a dreamlike, surreal quality to them. So yeah. it all it all meshes. It all makes sense. It's And, it, and it's super lovely. Um, yeah. I, I'm really interested to revisit this knowing that it's two stories because even in the little bit that I read, um, there's a lot going on thematically in the contrasts and connections between the two stories. Uh, and so like one of them is the setting. Mm-hmm. So the first story is primarily at night. and The second story is primarily during the day. 
um, the first story is in this very particular part of Hong Kong, um, and the second story is in another very particular part of Hong Kong that have very different cultural connotations. And then the first story is all about both stories uh, play with the idea of physical the physical distance you have to someone. Hmm. Um, and so the first one's very much about like being physically close to someone. And then the second one is very much about occupying spaces when the other person isn't there. Right. And so they're playing in these kind of contrasting realms to make similar points. Hmm. And I didn't know that that was going to be happening. And so I think I kind of missed it as I was like, why am I watching this like blonde wig film noir like this is not what i thought this movie was going to be about yeah um knowing that and also knowing that the first story i believe is is significantly shorter than the second story oh yeah like i, I just would yeah i, I want to see it again and i want to have all of that knowledge yeah i think i'll enjoy this a lot more on the second viewing even just this conversation here has me rethinking about the movie and how much i liked certain aspects of it you want to hear what Roger Ebert said about it? Oh, that's our homeboy. Uh, yeah, I tend to. Who knew that I'd be really invested in the way he speaks about film, even if I don't always agree with him. And it's a name that if you are, a f you don't even need to be a film lover to just know the name Roger Ebert. In Yeah, in and I didn't realize he film. was thinking about things really, really thoughtfully. So he said about this movie, quote, this is the kind of movie you'll relate to if you love film itself rather than its surface aspects such as story and stars. It's not a movie for casual audiences, and it may not reveal all its secrets the first time through. If you are attentive to the style, if you think about what Wong is doing, it works. If you're trying to follow the plot, you may feel frustrated. It's a film to be challenged by. It needs to be said in any event that a film like this is largely a cerebral experience. You enjoy it because of what you know about film, not because of what it knows about life. Mm. God damn, that's eloquently put. Do you agree with it, though? Yes and no. Like I, I do. I like. I feel like it is. He's saying that it's not saying something about life. It is. Well, no, for, he's not saying that. He's saying. Like, so the final thing. I'm he such says a literal is, bitch. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you really are. He's saying that <laughs> his last line is, "You enjoy it because of what you know about film, not because of what it knows about life." So he's not saying it doesn't know anything about life, but that the film goer enjoys it because of the film part of it, and less the literal part of it or the like compare this to like an Aaron Brockovich. You've been really into talking about Aaron Brockovich lately. I've, I've mentioned it once, <laughs> <laughs> but now it's twice. You mentioned no, it. No, I know. Now we've mentioned it twice. Um, yeah, no, I, I do like that. Cause yeah, I feel like, I mean, you could take this as just straight up a romance film, but I feel I felt it on a much more, I don't know, this sounds kind of snooty, but like an artistic level. Well, think of it this way. My mom really likes romance films. Do you think she'd like this movie? No. I don't. But this is a, I feel like this is a romance film for people like us. Just smart. Like, smart arty. <laughs> smart romance. <laughs> <laughs> you sounded like Prozac there. A bit of sexual frustration. <laughs> I love that those guys don't have those accents. I um, shared Prozac with um, one of my classes. I showed them some snippets from a bunch of videos. A lot of 
cartoon women with huge breasts. I was like, oops. Um, and one of them has started actively listening to Prozac. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. So hey. we're bringing Prozac back. So influencers. Yeah, yeah, we're big time influencers. We've seen Prozac live twice. Yeah. Once they opened for Aqua. Yeah. Who are we? Um, Children of the 90s. Truly. That nostalgia drip is strong. This movie, it's interesting. And I always get really compelled by how limitations can create the conditions for artistic creativity. Yes. So I don't know if you know this, but Wong Kar Wai was making a quite involved film that needed to take a two-month break, but he had a contract for a certain certain number of films with the production company he was working with or the studio that he was working with. And so in the two-month break of the film that he was working on, he was just like, I'll make something. And he made this. That's so something that could be fast, something that the script could be quick. Um, and I think that this is one of his most well-known and well-regarded films. Do you know what the other film was that he was making? Something with ashes in the title. I, I, I don't know why I asked. I don't know his filmography super well. Ashes of Time, it's called. Is it highly rated? Um, It has a 7 out of 10 on IMDb. And it has a 3.5, so it, so identical, uh, out of 5 on But Chung King has an 8 on IMDb and, like, similar on Letterboxd, right? Chung King has a 4.3 on Letterboxd. Yeah. So, yeah, this, I mean, so that's so interesting. He's making this, like, film that's taking a lot of time and energy. He needs to take a break, and he makes this in a two-month period, and it ends up being such a significant film to film history well it sounds like it was made out of a passion to make it so there's love and care and excitement around doing this thing and it's like it's the breather yeah something different from what you're currently working on and that's where i I think yeah that idea of i just want to make something that's quick and i want to make something but and uh, and another way you could look at it is like, oh, he was just trying to check the box to fulfill the contract and this came out of it. But I think it's that pressure cooker of like artistic limitation. I have two months to do something that actually enables this really incredible thing to be made. It's kind of cool. Yeah, I, I love it. Other interesting thing. We, uh, we covered Kill Bill recently and we have covered... Um, death proof before and we've talked a little bit about like our complicated Quentin Tarantino feelings absolutely hilarious line in the show jury duty about Quentin Tarantino <laughs> have to say if you're not watching that uh, we just started it last night and so funny. I'm all in um, but Quentin Tarantino signed a deal with Miramax specifically because of this film to get his own releasing company because he wanted to bring Chunking Express to North America and get it a wider audience. Hmm. And although I have a lot of really complicated feelings about him and like doing some good things doesn't all of a sudden change my mind about you, I do think that's like pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. Like I think that there, there are good intentions throughout Quentin Tarantino's career in his films and just him as a person doing things like this. I think that Kill Bill was a 
um, an effort to try to expose North American audiences to want to mm-hmm. pick up more martial arts focused movies that were not made in North America. But there is still a big ick factor yep. wrapped up in all of that. So it is complicated. But yeah, I thought that was that was really interesting. And I think that, that is something I I look for in celebrities is like, what are you doing to take the power that you have and help others gain that power, right? So to be like, this is a phenomenal film that not enough people know about. Um, so I'm going to use my connections here to to make sure that it's seen by more people i think is a good thing. yeah so cool i would to- i'm like i'm so at this point i am so in on watching more wong kar wai movies i think that having like a wong kar wai festival would be so fun metro cinema is playing one next month that's right yeah and i think it's the gay one so that's exciting love and gay content I also love gay content. Do you love gay content? Uh, one of my students said this week that only the girls and the gays listen to our show. So, so that an audience that uh, I I strive to be our audience. Yeah, I, I am both not surprised and am grateful. If you are a girl and or a gay and you listen to our show. Welcome. Yeah, that's what we're looking for. <laughs> You're in the right place. <laughs> Welcome to Bad Dad Rad Dad, <laughs> where the girls and the gays congregate once a week. Anyway, I did really, I really liked this movie. I don't think it hit the way it's one day going to. Um, when we covered Mirror by Tarkovsky, um, the fellow who curated the collect at the screenings that it was a part of spoke about how there's some films who that like a particular viewing they will open themselves to you and that connection will will happen um and i i truly believe that will happen with me with this film but it wasn't on the first viewing yeah did this did this play at metro recently i think it has played at metro sometime in the last five years because i feel like this would be fun to watch with an audience that was like there for it yeah. um because there are some really humorous moments in this that i think would be really fun to experience with other people in a crowd. I, I guess it's a lot of people have a tradition of watching it on like April 20 or April 30th or May 1st. <laughs> Could be a cute little. I'm not going to lie. That's part of the reason why I picked it because like a lot of people were, or a lot of channels that I follow on we're re-watching Instagram it. were rewatching it and posting stills from it around like May 1st yeah. and stuff. So I was like, Could be a new tradition. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yep. What was the other one? Willy Wonka? Watching that on like October for whenever they go to the thing, I can't remember. We talked about it. Not important. What do you think? Nope. What? How? How did Chunking Express make you feel? It made me feel absolutely delighted. Oh, particularly that um, second story. But it was it was something that I just was fascinated by as I was watching. How about you? Uh, it made me feel wrapped up in whimsy. Yeah, it's good. Yep which is a different feeling from what this next movie made me feel. Absolutely different feeling. Second movie of the week. So we've we've been chatting about this. I'm so sorry to those of you who either don't give a darn about hockey um, and because, as we've previously established, this our listenership is primarily the girls and the gays. I don't know how much the crossover between that and hockey is. 
Um, typically that crossover doesn't exist for us either. But because of that, we've really been struggling to make sure we watch a movie a day, which is our goal for the year. Um, not a movie a day in reality, but 365 movies over, over the year. The year. Um, and I think we've fallen behind on that target right now a little bit. But I was like, okay, hockey, it was on a little bit earlier in the day. Can I sneak in a movie after the game is done? And so I was looking for very short movies. So I picked Lux Eterna. It is like a 50-something minute movie. Um, came out in 2019. It is classified as a drama thriller, but I don't even know that this film can be classified. <laughs> it's directed and written by Gaspar Noé. And it stars Beatrice Dulle as Beatrice Dulle, Charlotte Gainsbourg as Charlotte Gainsbourg, and Abby Lee as Abby. And then there's a whole bunch of other people kind of milling in the background. The synopsis is two actresses, Beatrice Dolly and Charlotte Gainsbourg, are on a film set telling stories about witches, but that's not all. Lux Eterna is also an essay on cinema, the love of film, and on-set hysterics. Yo. So we watched this, I don't know, at like 10-ish at night after a playoff game. Can't remember if we won the game or not. Our spirits are usually quite low when we don't win. What did you think of Lux Eterna? Uh, yeah, this was one of the wildest cinematic trips I've taken over the course of 51 minutes. Um, the whole experience was very stressful, filled me with anxiety. Um, but at the same time, I in, enjoyed the trip. Uh, is this have, so what have we seen from Gaspar Noé? We've seen Climax. I think that's all you've seen. I've seen Climax and I've seen Love. Right, okay. I remember when I worked at Blockbuster, Enter the Void came out, and the I didn't watch it, but a few people did, and they're like, it's fucked up. Yeah, he's in that, um, I mean, he's part of the New French Extremity movement, but he's kind of in that icky space of like a Lars von Trier or Yorgos Lanthimos, where there's something compelling and yet something that makes you feel, at least for me, repulsed at my own sense of being compelled by it. Yes. Yep. He's an expert. Yeah. he. I mean, I think Yorgos Lanthimos does that so far. And, and I've seen more of his films the most for me where I'm like, I'm really into this and I'm also kind of ashamed that I am. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think sometimes things I've seen by Lars Venture, sometimes I'm just like, I don't even know that I'm into this. Mm -hmm. And then so far with what we've seen with Gas Burnaway, I don't think we've seen his most intense films mm -hmm. like irreversible i think is pretty yeah pretty tough to say the least to put that um lightly but this was something else entirely wikipedia lists it as a quote french independent experimental meta art film it's a lot of nice words it's a lot of descriptors yes I mean, how do you explain what this is? I I think that it is a. I don't even know if it's an exaggeration, but it is a look at, like you said in the synopsis, at the production of a film and the chaos that can exist behind it. I mean, I will say. In my job, I work in advertising, 
and I have been to a number of video shoots for TV spots and and videos that are being produced. So it involves a full film crew and directors and producers and clients and agency people. And with all of that, there's a lot of opinions and there can be struggles for control. And there's people that are there to manage time and resources and make sure that things run smoothly when, of course, things don't always run smoothly. And I feel like this movie is just it's it's highlighting the worst it's it's highlighting some of the worst things that can happen on a production the experience of watching it was incredibly stressful yeah and thank goodness it's only 50 some minutes because i can't imagine watching like two three hours of it well it's so funny because like and not funny haha but like the majority of the movie is just you're sitting in this stress and anxiety um for your mind and then the last bit of the movie is stress on your eyes yeah it's like a um sensory stress yes we were gonna see this in the theater and i don't know that it was when it came out because i feel like it was after covid that metro played it right we ended up not going because we live a 30 minute drive away from the theater and it felt like I think we were just tired and it was like, I don't know, going all the way there and back for a 50 minute movie. I can't imagine having seen this in the theater. Like it gets to a point the the last, I don't know, 10 minutes of the movie ish. I had to like kind of hold my head <laughs> to like center myself a little bit. I was like, squinting my eyes to minimize the impact. Yeah. Cause there is a um, epilepsy warning. And I think that's movie. much it, more a, a warning that needs to be heated perhaps more than when you get it on like Stranger Things. Yes. Because um, the, the flashing lights, even the sounds that are used, like it is a sensory overload at yeah. the end, by the end of this film. It's, a, it's overloaded you emotionally and mentally throughout the majority of it. And then it just pushes you over the edge for the rest of your senses. By the end of the film. So I think that if I, I think if we'd seen it in the theater, that experience would have been magnified significantly. But I also think I might not be alive. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. potato, potato. Um, this is on Shudder. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? I feel like we've just had this conversation so many times and it, uh, we still don't have a, a definitive answer because Shudder typically reserved for horror movies or horror adjacent movies. Yeah. I don't know if I'd consider this horror adjacent. This is more like, I don't even know if it's, I would say it's like thriller. Like I'd say there's, there's, level, there's a level of like suspense. Like I don't know what's happening and I'm living in discomfort this is one of those, so we, when we covered the movie Ennis Men, and, and this wasn't my idea or my thought or my original thought, I had um, read this on somebody's letterbox review about Ennis Men in a theater versus in an art gallery. Yes. This film also feels like it could be part of an art exhibit. Totally. Yeah. And it's, in that respect, difficult to classify because it seems to be more about the experience of watching it and what it has to say 
artistically than about it as any sort of film, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, film is the medium it's chosen to use to explore these ideas, but it feels like it could easily be part of an exhibit with multiple different mediums exploring the interplay of hysterics and labor and creation and the role of the creator in it. I mean, this film seems to be thinking a lot about like the director and what people think about the director and what the director thinks about themselves um, because it it's intercut with these like quotes which I really like. This yeah. Stylistic. That's like, this feels like a, it could be a university thesis project. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that is, is definitely up my alley. Do you think you'd ever watch it again? I, I think I said this after we watched it, I would, but I would want to watch it with people who haven't seen it. Right. Or I could see myself watching it with the intention of like analyzing it. Yes. Like watching it, as a piece that I want to understand more mm-hmm. and less as, oh, I just want to watch it and experience it again. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't just be like Sunday afternoon. Let's throw on Lexa Turner. Yeah. It's like how I'm not like Sunday afternoon. Let's read Shakespeare. Yeah. Let's uh, rewatch come and see every Friday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it would be, there'd be, have to be some intention behind revisiting it. Yes. I'm really glad we are familiar with Beatrice Dolly because I don't think we were when we considered seeing this at Metro. Mm-hmm. But since then, we've seen Travel Every Day that she's in and we've seen Inside. Um, not the Bo Burnham one, not the Willem Dafoe one. <laughs> Stop <laughs> calling things Inside. I actually think that this that the one she was in was the first, but, you know. <laughs> um, so I'm glad that we knew who she was. Because I think that that has bearing on the film as well, like knowing who Charlotte Gainsbourg is and knowing who Beatrice Dolly is. I really like Charlotte Gainsbourg. Me too. I like when she shows up and stuff. And I like that she likes to play in the uh, icky territory when it comes to her films. Yeah, she's an icky queen. queen. It was uh, It was an experience, and I don't know that it was the best choice for after the emotional overload that tends to be the playoffs. You're either riding high or you were just miserable yeah when we lost the other day elliot you were like this sucks i'm miserable i'm so upset let's go to bed (laughs) somebody uh i follow on twitter they have their pinned tweet is anybody who says that they've never gone to bed angry isn't in a relationship with the oilers (laughs) (laughs) facts how did luxa turn to make you feel mind and eye meltingly enthralled how did it make you feel? It made me feel both intellectually engaged and then completely overwhelmed in a sensory way. Mm-hmm. You know, as one does. Yeah, that classic thing. Okay. Um, went back to me for a mystery movie pick. So I chose to revisit the 2018 animation action adventure film Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. It was directed by... a uh, Bob Persciatti, Peter Ramsey, and Rodney Rothman. It was written by Phil Lord and Rodney Rothman, uh, and the story was by Phil Lord. Okay. It stars Shamik Moore as Miles Morales, Jake Johnson as Peter B. Parker, Haley Steinfeld as Gwen Stacy, Mahershala Ali as Uncle Aaron, uh, Brian Tyree Henry as Jefferson Davis, Lily Tomlin as Aunt May, 
uh, Luna Lauren Valles as Rio Morales, Zoe Kravitz as Mary Jane, John Mulaney as Spider-Ham, Kamiko Glenn as Penny Parker, Nicholas Cage as Spider-Man Noir, Catherine Hahn as Doc Ock, and Liv Schreiber as Wilson Fisk, amongst many other people. But holy shit, the what a stack cast. The voice cast is just phenomenal to the point that you have to list all of them. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> um synopsis teen miles morales becomes the spider-man of his universe and must join with other five spider-powered individuals from other dimensions to stop a threat for for all realities i love that spider-powered individuals <laughs> um okay we i wanted to pick this because i wanted to prep for uh, across the spider-verse which is coming up very very soon we got our tickets we're going opening night imax best seats in the house <laughs> i'm so fucking excited <laughs> Um, we've seen this a few times. We saw it in the theater when it came out and it blew our minds. True. Revisiting it now. What do you think of Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse? I think every time I see this, I like it more. Although it, there's something very special of, about seeing it in the theater. Like that scene, like the scene. Leap of faith. Yeah. With, um, what's the song that's playing? <sighs> I don't know. I can't. It's what's up danger. It's just one of the best scenes in anything in cinema ever. Yeah, like I have written down here that moment. There are other moments too, but that moment in particular, it's iconic not only as a Spider-Man moment, but as a cinematic moment. Absolutely. It is going to forever be an important part of cinema. And everything coalesces in that scene the animation, the themes of the story, the cultural significance of Spider-Man and what a finally having a Miles Morales on the big screen means mm. culturally. Um, this The soundtrack in that moment, it's just all so, so good. So I'm, I'm really glad that we saw it in the theater, but I, I just come to appreciate the film more every time. And what was particularly interesting about watching it this time is I believe this is the first time we've watched it since No Way Home came out. Mm -hmm. And in some ways it made me think No Way Home really stole this film's thunder with nostalgia tricks mm -hmm. and this film did it with craft and creativity. Mm -hmm. And I love No Way Home so much and it makes me feel like a shill when I look at this and say this is objectively better and objectively more important. This is the best Spider-Man film. Objectively, yes. Yeah. But there's something about No Way Home and my own relationship with the Sam Raimi and the Amazing Spider-Man movies that it's hard not to feel so in love with that. <laughs> um, and I think that to this day still, animation gets a bad rap. Yeah. Guillermo del Toro spoke to it very eloquently when he won an Oscar. Yeah. Of how it's not a medium to make movies for kids. It's just another medium to tell stories. And I think the Academy Awards could do something pretty phenomenal if they scrapped the animated film category and those became... I think animated films can be nominated for Best Picture, but they also have their own category. Just like international films can be nominated for Best Picture. Mm -hmm. But because I believe... Was Parasite in international and best? And did it win both? Yeah. 
fucking awesome. Because I think Beauty and the Beast might have been nominated for both animated and best picture. But Mm. yeah, there's something about it that I think even myself who believes in the value of animated films, who fucking loves animated films, Mm -hmm. can sometimes subconsciously see them as slightly less than. And it's hard to separate that when you do go see them in the theater and that's who the audience can primarily be. Mm. Parents with kids or just younger kids in general. But I mean, to this day, one of my um, favorite theater experiences, favorite like first time seeing a movie is Wreck-It Ralph. Yeah. Where we're just like, we want to go to the movies. We're in West Ed. Let's go see whatever this thing is. And then it blew us away. Mm-hmm. Um, this film. Yeah, it is. It's the best Spider-Man film. It just is. Yeah. And I think it's it's so cool that it is, it is and it's focused. Our main character is not Peter Parker. It is telling the Miles Morales story, which is awesome. And he's such a great character. I love Miles in this. Um, and it again, like when I think No Way Home and I think about there's this one like Miles Morales tease in No Way Home. It feels cheap when it's like we already fucking have Miles Morales like. Let's not all like whoop and cheer and holler for this tease that the MCU is giving for something they haven't even done Mm -hmm. when we already have Miles Morales films. Yeah. And that's what I love about this is I I love that the the only Spider-Man films, big budget films that were being made are all live action. But I love that, you know, all of the people that I mentioned that created this film were like, fuck it, like we're going to tell a animated Spider-Man story that is on par, if not, well, better than the live action stuff that's coming out. And the fact that this worked and that it's so beloved by so many people and it, and it, I'm sure it's cleaned up the box office and got such a great response. I think it's so cool that they, I don't know if it was them taking a risk or not because it's an animated movie, but it's, it's animated and it's one of the best Spider-Man stories that's been put on film. And I don't know. I just love that. They're like, let's make it animated and you can just keep making animated movies and people will go see them. And I th- something that I think is so transcendent about this movie is the ultimate message of it, which I remember making me feel incredibly emotional when we saw it in the theater and we kind of get to the ending and we understand what it wants to say to the viewer which I think it's saying such an important thing Um, that by the end of the film, yes, this is the specific. um, What do we call the first in a superhero movie where they like get their powers and origin story? Yeah. It's, it's the origin story of Miles Morales. Thank you. Um, And it uses Miles Morales's specific origin story to tell a very universal idea. Mm-hmm. And I don't really feel like the live action Spider-Mans do that. It's just about Peter Parker and it's just about having fun with Peter Parker. But I love that this movie takes the piss out of it by when every time it introduces a spider powered person, it's like it always prefaces it. Let's do this one more time. <laughs> yeah. And it's so funny that it just takes the piss out of it because that is it's recognizing the conversations that audiences have been having forever of like, do we need another Spider-Man or yeah. do we need another Batman origin story? We've all seen it so many times. Yeah, it has. It, it takes the piss out of it while doing it lovingly. Yes. And I feel like what No Way Home does in terms of being meta is never. It's fun and it's lovely, 
but at no point is it actually engaging with critique mm-hmm. in a valuable way. Um, yeah, this film is just, it has such heart. Well, and it's, it plays on the nostalgia. I feel like uh, Across the Spider-Verse is going to do so much more of bringing in nostalgia for Spider-Man lovers of all ages for however long you've loved Spider-Man. These are freaking emotional movies, though. Like, just the two trailers I've we've seen for Across the Spider-Verse. Like, Especially the first one. I'm already welling up. And, like, we have theories of what's going to happen. And if it does happen, it's going to hit like a brick. Um but yeah, there's 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 a beat. There are beats throughout this that get me emotional. But there's one in particular that every time it happens, like and it happened again this time, like my eyes just fill with tears. And it's a moment with Peter B. Parker when he's um, they go to Aunt May's house. Right. Yeah. And he has a couple of lines that he says. Um, like, I'm not ready for this. And Aunt May says, you look tired. And he says, I am tired. <laughs> I'm getting welly just talking about it. It's so it's so well played and <laughs> Nick Miller Spider-Man is uh, so plays it so good. Jake I John- love Nick Miller. I love Jake Johnson. It's it's such a smart choice for a somebody like him to play a version of Spider-Man the way that he does. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Because again, it's it goes back to the thing we've talked about so many times on this show of when a comedic actor veers into drama. And does it so effectively and so well. The entire voice cast just kills it. And these are all, I mean, really and truly, the vast majority of them are voices I'm very familiar with. And I do recognize them, but not to a point of distraction, except maybe John Mulaney. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so it's so good. I also find the... Um, I don't know what you'd call it, like the sonic signature of the Prowler's music, terrifying, like terrifying. If I had seen that when I was a little kid, I would have been very scared. Yeah, the sting of like whenever the Prowler's around, the music sting. Do you know what it is? Hmm. It's an elephant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. But there's there's a moment in this movie where there's there's an interaction with the prowler and then we just linger on miles's face and he's like wide-eyed and then like the music really kicks Ugh. in it like kind of it it scares it's me a scary. little because you you feel the fear that miles is fear that feeling in that moment and it's so effective yeah and they're doing a lot of really intentional stuff with the animation um because this is miles miles's origin story it's no surprise that he's fumbling for a lot of the film so I was reading, I, I never would have picked up on this because I'm me and visual stuff is not my forte, but I guess that the movie runs at 24 frames per second, but Miles runs at 12 frames per second. Yeah, so cool. And after he's bit by the spider, he slowly, like very gradually speeds up. Mm-hmm. Like it's not like he goes from 12 to 24. He's slowly speeding up throughout the film until he hits 24 frames per second. It's so good. I've, I now I need to watch it looking for that because I'm sure that subconsciously that's that's happening and I'm recognizing that on an emotional level, mm-hmm. but I've never looked at it from a craft level and 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 actively recognized it and been able to speak about the impact of that purposeful animation choice. Yeah, which is like what I do in my job, <laughs> <laughs> teach um, students how to do that. If uh, if you or anybody that's listening uh, loves this movie as much as we do and wants to learn more about that kind of stuff, a really great video. There's a 
So there's the there's the channel Cinema Sins, and they do everything wrong with movies. But and I tend not to like that because it just focuses on the negative. But there is a kind of uh, like a sister channel. I don't think it's made by the same people called Cinema Wins, and it's everything great about. And there is one of those for this movie, and it dives into some of those smaller details and things that are present in, in the visuals and in the storytelling. I'd like to watch that. It's really really good. I've watched it a few times actually because I, I like it so much. And um, I, every time I've watched. This film, uh, after having watched the Everything Great With video, I pick up on so many more things. And it's just the attention to detail throughout the film is incredible. And it just makes me love it even more. So highly recommend checking it out on YouTube. Uh, Everything Great With Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I also need to um, mention that an early part of our relationship was watching Clone High together. <laughs> yeah. And we'd both seen it independent of each other, I believe. Yeah. And owned it. Yeah, I like special ordered it when I worked at Blockbuster and it was really difficult to get. I um throughout much of my life have loved saying I wanna, wanna party platter and makeover, 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 makeover. Clone High is, I haven't watched it since we were in our early 20s, but I remember it being so smart and funny and having heart. Mm -hmm. And so it's no surprise to me that that exists in this too when Phil Lord is involved in both. Mm -hmm. Um, Highly recommend Clone High for people who've never seen it. Uh, Is the new season out already? I don't know if it started yet. We should rewatch it and then and then watch it. Mm-hmm. And another thing I want to talk about is the conversation around multiverse stuff. Okay. Because I feel like one of the most common things I hear, like sometimes even just at a movie theater, I'll hear somebody say this, like somebody I don't know, see it all over Letterboxd. It's, it's in all of the articles. It's just like people being sick of multiverse stuff. Mm. there's too much multiverse stuff. This came up with No Way Home. It came up with Everything Everywhere All at Once where people are just like, I'm fucking done with multiverse stuff. Mm. I have to be honest, I'm not done with it. (laughs) No. It works for me in the way that I'll never be done with horror. I am compelled by the idea of the multiverse and what it allows for thematic and emotional exploration. Mm-hmm. And the different approaches to it. Because I feel like what's happening with a multiverse in this is very different from what's happening with a multiverse and everything everywhere all at once. And mm-hmm. yes, I can get on on the same page with people who say that perhaps the MCU is using the multiverse as a cheap trick to be able to never have to commit to a choice that they make. Yes. At any point. It's a scapegoat. Can, yeah. And that... It, they're not doing it all that thoughtfully and they're perhaps the ones wrecking the multiverse. Hmm. But I am into the multiverse mania right now. Yeah, me too. Because I feel like it lends itself, if it's if it's leveraged correctly, it lends itself to some very emotional storytelling as we've seen in No Way Home and as we've seen in Everything Everywhere. And from what we're predicting for across the Spider-Verse, I think it's going to have a very impactful emotional heft in Miles's story um, and how he sits within the pantheon of spider people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, yeah, I'm with you. I'm not super stoked on how 
the MCU has been handling multiverse stuff. And I feel like maybe that's where a lot of people are coming from with mm-hmm. their multiverse hate. But there's still great multiverse stories to be told. I mean, you and I were just having a personal conversation the other day. And I'm just like, I'm sure that this version of myself exists in another universe. Yeah. This, like, we apply our own lives to the fact that there is there could be a multiverse out there and multiple versions of ourselves living different versions of our of the same life. I don't know. It's a fun conversation to have. I'm not sick of it. I'll I'll keep going and seeing stuff, dealing with multiverse stuff. I love it. I agree. I don't begrudge anyone who doesn't because we all have our specific genres that don't really compel us. You know, I'm not really an action guy. Mm-hmm. And as I've said, I'm not a film noir guy. I'm not interested in watching a Spider-Man noir spinoff. Mm-hmm. He's funny in his little bits, but I'm also not a slapstick guy, so I'm not inter- interested in watching a Spider Ham spinoff. <laughs> yeah. Um, but oh. I, yeah, I, 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 I'm still into the multiverse stuff and and what it can potentially allow for in terms of you got ideas. Me. You got me thinking though, because this is this franchise is firmly in Sony's hands and not Disney Marvels. Thank God. Um, but. I was just thinking with what you were saying, I feel like if it was reversed and this was more in Disney's hands, hands down, they'd be having like a Spider-Man Disney Plus exclusive, Spider-Ham Disney Plus show, Spider-Man Noir Disney Plus show. Like they would just try to rake in the cash by by putting out all of these companion series that we don't need to enhance this universe at all. Um, but yeah, I... Love this movie. I'm like you. I love it more and more every time I watch it. I've bumped it right to a five. It's one of my favorites. You said you say you say I'm handing out fives like candy lately, but uh, I love what I love, you know. And I'm so excited for the sequel. I'm so ready. How did this make you feel? It makes me feel inspired and odd. Odd. Not odd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you. Um. Makes me feel like all of my spider senses were being joyfully tingled. All right. We closed out the week. No movie theater this week. Closed out the week with a mystery movie pick from yours truly. And I just wanted to watch something big and dumb and fun that wasn't too long. I I wasn't in the mood for anything, to use Roger Ebert's words, cerebral. I wasn't into anything that was going to take... Too much brain power. Um, So I picked The Slumber Party Massacre, a 1982 horror film directed by Amy Holden Jones and written by Rita Mae Brown. It stars Michelle Michaels as Trish, Robin Stile as Valerie, Michael Villella as Russ Thorne, Deborah DeLiso as Kim, Andre Andrea Honore as Jackie, and Jennifer Myers as Courtney, and there's more. Um, But the cast list was already getting a little long there. (laughs) synopsis a female high school student slumber party turns into a bloodbath as a newly escaped psychotic serial killer wielding a power drill prowls her neighborhood what did you think of the slumber party massacre this was big and dumb and fun yeah yeah i mean first off if you haven't seen the poster for this movie it is super horny oh my goodness but it also okay it is horny but it also evokes like the fear street books (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah like it's yeah. very 
you know what you're getting into. The cover tells you exactly what it's going to be like. It feels pulpy. Yes. You know, and it's kind of fun. Like that would be uh, Slumber Party Massacre. Spoiler alert. It's not my favorite movie I've ever seen in my life. Not my favorite horror movie I've ever seen. But that poster would be fun to have framed in a house. I agree because it is it's fun and stupid and horny. It's yeah, fun I'd... and stupid and horny. <laughs> uh, how could you not be interested in watching this? Um, I want to say too, I don't know, maybe this is a silly thing to say, but I think it's cool that a movie like this that came out when it did was made by women, written and directed by ladies. Yeah, so <laughs> I picked this because we are, we do actively try to make sure that um, we're watching films by people of color and by women and other gender minorities um, in a week and not just the white, white guys, white boy, white boy, not just boy, straight white, white guys. Um, and we hadn't watched a movie made by a woman this week. Um, and I was like, I want to watch a horror movie. And this was directed by a woman. Now, what I didn't know until it came up on the screen was that Rita Mae Brown wrote the screenplay, which was really surprising to me. I'm guessing you don't know who that is, Mm-mm. but she is a very important culturally relevant uh, lesbian fiction writer. So she wrote the book Ruby Fruit Jungle. She was also, it's believed, the um, longtime partner of Fanny Flagg, who wrote Fried Green Tomatoes. Oh. Um, they lived together for a long time, and they both wrote some pretty gay books. So <laughs> it's the, the thought is that they have been um, partners. But I was like, what? Rita Mae Brown, like she's like part of like the literary canon of lesbian fiction. Right. And I had no idea that she wrote this. So what I found out upon reading about it is that Rita Mae Brown wrote it as a satire. She wrote it as a way to make fun of these slashers. Uh, I feel that's fully present here. But it wasn't done with that intention. So they took her script and made a real slasher with it. And didn't lean into the satire, I think, as much as she probably would have wanted. But it is there. As horror fans, I see the satire. I agree, but I don't think it's intentional necessarily. Mm. So you kind of need to be a more savvy film goer to to pick up on the satire. Well, not even necessarily, but I think that some of it... They took her screenplay and, and attempted to play it straight. Right. They took a lesbian writer's screenplay that satirizes the often misogynistic and ultra-violent against women's bodies horror movies, and then they attempted to play it straight, and I think just her script comes through anyway. Yeah, because when you, you can't make gay straight. <laughs> you can't make gay straight, that is true. Um, so this is also what's interesting, is that I feel like this movie is a movie at odds with itself because I can in so many moments feel Jones's attempts to make sure that it is not entirely misogynistic. Mm -hmm. But what I found out upon reading is that some of those scenes that are a little bit like, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. Um, It's because the producer insisted that they be there and he's a man. Uh, Roger Corman uh, that's his name. And so, for example, he said that he would only fund the film if that shower scene was in it. Fucking so all the boobs are because of him. And and it's those scenes that I don't think are entirely satirical, right? 
especially not after hearing that. Um, I, I, I think there's a degree to which we can read that into it. We can read in Amy Holden Jones attempts to veer away from that when she can and Rita Mae Brown's original intentions with the script. And we can watch that shower scene with the, you know, pan down to the butt and then the pan back up the butt and, and find it funny. Mm-hmm. But I don't necessarily think that's how viewers were watching it in 1982. No, you're you're totally right because you and I watching it, like I, th- I think we both laughed because I, I mean, I wasn't under the impression that there was creepy, icky guy behind it. I just kind of figured that it was like, like these women that are trying to take the piss out of movies that are like this and it just being like this gratuitous nudity scene and like get the pan down to the butt, hold for a beat and then go back up. And I think it's both at once. But even yeah. in reading... Like, so Amy Holden Jones, I have this quote from her where she said, um, quote, that's what Roger Corman, the producer, wanted. And that's how it's done. You give the studio what they want. Nobody complains that Scorsese, Jonathan Demme and uh, Ron Howard made exploitation pictures. But when a woman tries, she gets called a hypocrite and a turncoat. That's bullshit. So. She's not at any point saying, oh, I was playing with it i was satirizing it she's saying no i was doing what i was asked to do and it's fucking misogyny that you tell me i can't do that but you don't criticize the men yeah so there's layers to this complicated it's really complicated and especially when it's like oh fuck i wish that it i wish it was with rita may brown's original intentions and knowing what i know about her aside from this film and again, like I just cannot express to you how shocked I was when I saw her name come up. I'm like, excuse me? Right. That it's like this weird pastiche of itself because mm-hmm. we can watch it with that lens, but is that the lens that it was created with and that it was viewed with in the 80s? Yeah. You know what I would love is uh, it would be so great if there was a director's cut of this movie. But I don't think she had a director's like I don't I think definitely, this is the film that she no, made. Definitely not. But I would have loved if she was able to do that. Yeah. And and to see what the film she would have liked to have made without the influence of Icky Picky uh, producer pants. Because this is something you and I really love horror, but not to the point that we watch schlocky horror typically. Yeah. And anytime we have watched a schlockier horror film, I'm always shocked by how many boobs there are. Yeah. Because I think some of those um, more seminal slasher films, Halloween, I think, has some nudity. Yep. But it's not a, not like this. Not gratuitous. Yeah, not not everybody's naked in the showers and like we're just changing into our pajamas with our boobs out in front of each other. Nightmare on Elm Street doesn't have any. I don't think any. Right. So I'm always a little bit surprised. But then when we went and saw Silent Night, Deadly Night at the theater a couple of years ago, I was like, whoa, Boob City. (laughs) (laughs) And I think a lot of those schlockier slashers, like that was the thing. Yeah. Like it's just boobs out, knives out. Like, Mm -hmm. so I, um, I'm always a little taken aback by that because we don't watch so many of those. Mm-hmm. And I think we can read it ironically. We can read it satirically, but I don't necessarily think that's what was happening. Yeah. There, there's just a vibe that when we see movies like this that come out, that came out around this time, like 70s, 80s, that I just, I, I can, 
I watched those scenes and I just, I kind of just know what the reaction in the movie theater was probably like. And like a bunch of young douchey dudes were in the theater and just being douchey dudes. But then there is these elements where you can see Jones attempting to do something different in terms of the way that these films are often made and that the Mm -hmm. most graphic deaths are men. Yes. And that a lot of men die before women. Yeah. I think the first person who dies is a woman, but there are a lot of men who die. Mm -hmm. And we see their deaths more viscerally than we see most of the women's deaths. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I, I can feel her hand in it and and the Mm -hmm. ways that she does it differently than perhaps if Roger Corman was the man behind the camera Mm -hmm. and not just the one saying, well, you have to have that shower scene in this and I need more boobs. Well, and I definitely get the vibe throughout this whole thing that just like men suck. Yeah. Like that is, I mean, where this film eventually goes, (laughs) what the, what the drill and the imagery, the very hilarious shots where the drill is clearly phallic Mm -hmm. and like hyper, it's like it's very over the top. Yeah. Where it's like the way that that is shot, this is his penis. Yes. Um, some of the things that happen near the end of this film, they're great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's some there's some excellent kills. And like the the weapon choice, very unique. Yeah. I haven't seen a lot of drill wielding. And I just thought that prowlers. I thought it was very like I thought the drill was going to be very like this is just happenstance. This is what's here for this particular kill. And then he was going to drop it. He's like, no, I found, no, I am. I am the man with the drill. I found my thing. Um, What I want to say to you about the killer, I I kind of like that we just see his face so blatantly like they're not shrouding him in darkness. We don't see his face. We only do like first person POV a la Black Christmas. Mm hmm. Like it's just a guy, and he, but he's creepy in a Bob from Twin Peaks kind of way. He, it, yes, I agree. There was a couple of moments where I'm like, "Ooh, this is Twin Peaksy." Well, and he's not like, consistently, but <laughs> but he's got like Canadian tuxedo on, very Bob from Twin Peaks. Like I could, I could see in in some universe that David Lynch probably saw this and was maybe pulled a little bit from it. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Uh, there's there's a couple of really iconic moments. There's a um. Very funny and very iconic moment where we, we the audience, keep seeing where a dead body is, mm-hmm. but the character in the film doesn't. There's a bit with a fridge that is yeah, so good. It's one of my favorite things I think I've ever seen in a horror film. Is the film consistently one of my favorite horror films? No. no. Am I glad that I've seen it? Yes. Yeah. Would I watch the sequels? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Something that this movie reveled in was misdirects. Oh, it loved a misdirect. So many of them. A lot of knocks on the door. Yeah. When a lot of people take it, I will say, there's a part of this movie that made me miss sleepovers with a big group of people, miss slumber parties. Hmm. I don't know about you as a boy growing up in the suburbs, if you had a lot of slumber parties, but I had a lot of slumber parties. I had a lot of, and we all snuck out and did Ouija board by the lake. Or, and we all stayed up all night and watched Crossroads. Or, we all stayed up and played Truth or Dare. And, and like, when I was, like, 15, 16. Mm. We weren't taking our our, our uh, bodies out in front of each other the way they do in this. Like, tended to go into a bathroom to change into our pajamas. Yeah. Um, but, 
you would you'd hype yourself up and you get scared and you'd tease each other and like I I remember having slumber parties where we'd like yeah we'd all go out and like try and have a seance and then like people were trying to like take the piss out of each other because we we're already like kind of freaked out about that mm. um, and that's happening a lot in this film of like somebody trying to scare somebody else like the boys trying to scare the girls and the siblings trying to scare the older siblings and you know I did that in my first ever sleepover where I, where I had a friend over and we just started gassing each other up with like, what if there's somebody outside? But uh, he got too scared and he, he went home. And after he left, I cried. I was so upset. How old were you? I was pretty young. I feel like I was in like second or third grade. Is it the person I think that came over? Probably. <laughs> That's sad. Yeah. I was but then you had many more successful sleepovers later, right? Yeah, eventually just found the pocket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, man, I did you like having sleepovers at your place or did you like going to other people's houses more? Oh, so then and to this day, I would rather hang out with somebody till like four in the morning than go home and sleep in my own bed. So in some regards, I liked having them at my house better because I liked sleeping in my own space, but I don't like other people being in my space. Mm. Um, so I like being at home, but I don't like other people being in my home. And I like going to other people's houses, but I want to come home after. Right. So my ideal would have been to just like go over and come home. Right. But like, you know, when I'm like 13 years old, my mom's not going to come get me at three in the morning. Right. Yeah. See, I liked going to other people's houses more. I think I. My mom also was too. Um, like the this one time that we that we were going to sneak out and do a seance, we all moved our shoes the basement and then my mom noticed that like all the shoes were gone and then she was like whatever you guys are planning on doing don't don't do it <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was very fantastic yeah. um and then we were like we knew a thing and she's like well then where are your shoes and we're like fuck fuck she got us damn it and then, <laughs> then we and then, so then what we did is we threw all of the shoes in the backyard and we're like oh it was when we were playing with the sprinkler we like left them out there that's so stupid yeah it is it is so stupid but like my mom was just too hip to what we were going to do. And, and not that I'm saying some of my friends' parents weren't hip, but I think some of them like just didn't care. Right. Like I think um, we have a mutual friend who grew up for a long time with a single parent. I don't think her mom gave a fuck what we did. Sure, go out at three in the morning and have a seance. And she just like turn, and, turn her eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but my mom was like, you guys are not leaving the house. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, good for your mom being on. Um, one of my least favorite parts about having sleepovers is being the person that wakes up first, especially when it's not your house. Yeah. Cause then you're like, what the fuck do I do? And like, especially in a time when you don't have a cell phone, <laughs> like that you could just like play on your phone until your friends wake up. I also, so you, tended- just like, you just sit there and you're like, do I get up? Do I go play video games? Do I just go home or do I just sit here? quietly and wait until the person wakes up or do I wake up the person I don't know this is all the thoughts going through my head and I'm just panicking I tended to not sleep when I was at other people's houses so that was just me all night and I'd be like Uh, I'm just waiting until someone wakes up so I can like not be bored did you ever get yelled at for being too loud by your friend's parents (laughs) yes all the time oh man there's this one like memory we were at my friend my friend's place for his birthday and we all we're in the living room and we were just joking and joking and horsing around and making each other laugh. And then like his mom came out. 
If you don't be quiet, I'm calling all of your parents. You're going home. <laughs> Jesus Christ. No. Yeah. Real monster. And in the morning, she's like, who wants pancakes? <laughs> like Classic. Tone shift. Now, in this movie, they don't make it to sleep time. Well, do you know what the tagline of the movie is? Oh, is it the one on the poster? Yeah. What is it? It's so good. It's like close your eyes for a second or something. Hang on. It's kind of stupid. Close your eyes for a second and sleep forever. <laughs> no, it's great. It's not stupid. It's like it's like fun stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah, po- it's pretty. This poster's pretty good. It would be fun to have that poster. Yeah, I think I like the, I like the style of it. I like the type treatment. I mean, like it does. It feels like a Fear Street book, and yeah. I freaking love Fear Street books. These freaking girls mashing their boobs against <laughs> each other is so stupid. Do you think you'd watch it again? Again, I would watch it with people who haven't seen it. Yeah, as like a fun like yeah, just like a goof off. Yeah, when I was in high school, we um we had a group that would just like kind of watch bad horror movies together and like talk through them, like like watch the movie and make fun of the movie as we watched it. Like kind of um, what's that mystery movie? Oh, mystery science, mystery science theater three thousand or whatever. Yeah, yeah, kind of like that where we were watching and engaging with the movie, but from a like take the piss out of it way. Yeah. Um. This is a perfect movie for that. I feel like it's 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 complicated. It's got these layers of like you can you can watch it as a satire and then it's pretty fucking good if you watch it as a satire of slasher films. But I feel like it's half that and half not that. Yeah. Which makes it complicated. But if you like Boobaloo Loobies, is this the movie for you? Yeah. Lots of those. This also has like it uses humor really effectively. And I feel like that is a testament to how the filmmakers understand the genre and how to have fun with it. Um, I like the ending too. Yeah. 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 Like it's just, it's, it's, it's dumb and fun. So how did it make you feel? Swept up in the bloody fun. Whoa. How did it make you feel? Just, it made me feel a sense of easy, goofy fun. Yeah. Like so it's, it's just, yeah. It gave you exactly what you were looking exactly for. Exactly what I was looking for. Perfect. Let's talk about bad dads and rad dads. All right. Bum, 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 dads of the week. Struggled a little bit with the bad dad this week. I did too. We had a couple movies that like, this is funny because in our upcoming daddy deep dive, we talked about how our guest said that they were nervous about how the film would connect to the idea of dad. And then as soon as we watched it, it was like, oh, Rife with dad. And then I was like, yeah, dad's in everything. And then I'm like, well, I don't know if it's really in Chunking Express or Lux Eternal. <laughs> you know, we'll manage. Who's I, feel, your ba- I feel like you could dig You could dig, you could dig deep. Yeah, 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 we always can. Who's your bad dad of the week? I picked Fisk from Spider-Man into yeah, the Spider-Verse. I, he was on my list. Yeah, I mean, I picked him because, I mean, he's a dangerous person to begin with. Like, that's just who he is aside from family dynamic stuff. But he lets grief take over his better judgment if he does have better judgment and that that just adds and amplifies his level of cruelty his refusing to work on his trauma um homeboy just needs therapy i have a good quote that i i didn't we never talked about fisk in our our talk about uh spider verse um but i have a really good quote from phil lord on kingpin so he said quote uh Fisk's physical presence doesn't leave room for anything else. He can just stand there and everything bends to his will, even the camera. He is basically this pure black figure and the most abstracted animated character I've ever seen. 
Yeah, because I think that the first time that we saw it, I was just like, this is fucking ridiculous what Fisk looks like. But he is a scary character. Yeah. And as I've watched it more and more, I'm like, oh, he's imposing as fuck. Yeah, imposing is the perfect word. Okay, I get, I, I, I see, yeah. Okay, who'd you pick? <laughs> I picked Russ Thorne, the murderer from Slipper Party Massacre. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, murdering's not a great dad look. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want a dad that murders. Also, like, the connection, dad's power tools, you know, like, dads love power tools, but he's wielding them in a real nasty way. Yeah. Fisk is better. <laughs> I do love that. Nobody wants a dad that murders. But imagine the bad dad of the week with the drill. <laughs> it would be pretty good. Yeah, graphic-wise, that's, that's a good pick. Murdering's not a great dad look. It's not. I'll let you decide. Okay. I mean, Fisk does love his child. Yeah. And I mean, spoiler alert, I uh, it would be an all Spider-Verse week if my rad dad gets picked. Yeah, that's why I didn't pick Fisk. <laughs> okay. Let's fucking do it then. <laughs> Russ Thorne. <laughs> Don't be our dad. Don't be our dad. Don't prowl our lives. Yeah. <laughs> get your get your drill away. Oh my god. Okay, so should we say our rad dad of the week on one, two, three? Yeah, full name? Yep. Okay. Okay. One, two, three. Peter B. Parker. Of course. Yeah. Of course. It was just like I had no trouble picking my rad dad, and then I was like, I don't know about bad dad. Also, Slumber Party Massacre had a lot of potential bad dads. Like Diane, I think, could have been a bad dad. I was but pick I also one of the boys. think I also think Valerie or Coach Jana or whatever her name is could have been rad dads. Yeah. I think slasher films really do speak to the bad and rad dad, but in some very simple. Yeah, ways. absolutely. I Peter will, B. Parker, but like fit and Fisk is a very complex bad dad. But sometimes you just want to have some fun and say, get your drill away from me. Yes. But Peter B. Parker as a rad dad. Tell me. No, you tell me. Okay. Something I find. Really complex about picking Peter B. Parker is that. He encapsulates it like sometimes you don't want to have to be the leader. Sometimes you don't want to have to be the parent. Sometimes you don't want to have to be the mentor. But the situation demands that you step up and you be present. Mm -hmm. And a person can either choose to do that or choose not to. Mm -hmm. In in life, like sometimes you've fucking chosen to have a kid and yet you still don't step up and be present. Mm -hmm. And he is somebody mm -hmm. who he doesn't want to do any of these things he's being asked to do. But he does them. Mm -hmm. Because that's the right thing to do. And he shows that journey of like learning how to take responsibility for someone else and how to mentor somebody else. And then in that process, allowing them to teach you about yourself. Literally the opposite of Fisk. Yes. I mean, but, and this is what happens, right? These foil characters exist in, and we, I mean, we've been talking about this as far back as like our first guest episode with Jeremy episode six, where we talked about often when you pick, one dad, there's a contrasting figure within the film who could be the other. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like that's pretty common. Yeah. And they tend to speak to the opposite ways that we would look at dad. Do you have anything else to add about Peter B. Parker? Uh, yeah. I mean, I appreciate that he is a complex person, but he is working on rebuilding himself. Yes. And is almost... 
gently forced to rebuild himself. And he, he there's moments in here where he blatantly reflects on things yep. or reexamines things. <laughs> Some uh, of them very funny. Yes. Um, Do I want this? <laughs> I like that he's supportive and that he gets he gets excited and celebrates the little victories and the the tiny moments and he's he's trustworthy yeah like his his character arc is just a great exploration of a person who you would want as a dad he's lovely he's a very good dad <laughs> all right peter b parker be your dad. dad i've got two daddies whoa two I've got two daddies. Whoa, okay. Tell me about it. I got Cop 633 and Faye. Yeah. From Chunking Express. I'm not going to deny that at all. Um, two Babely babes babing it up in the babeliest way. So Cop 663 and Faye. Weet woo. Okay. Okay, so Rad Wreck of the Week. There was a video that dropped this week from Vox that very much applies to us, our lives, and the movies that we watch. It's a video titled How A24 Took Over Hollywood. And it's this small piece that kind of deep dives into the history of the studio, A24, uh, a studio very quickly uh, just taking all of the money from our paychecks with their birch drops and movies that they've been putting out. Um, and it just it dives into their history, how they started, to how they to where they're at now and to just how influential they are as a studio and the the choices they make for the films that they choose to put out and the culture that exists around the studio of A24 and how no other studio really has that sort of culture outside of like say a, a Disney or something like that. But it was really interesting and it's a real real short watch. Um it's not a, it's not a lengthy movie or movie <laughs> lengthy YouTube video. But it is really interesting, and from a movie lover's perspective, I, I quite enjoyed it. And from an A24 lover's perspective, uh, I thought it really Got us. really interesting. So, yeah, we'll put a link to that in the show notes, uh, Vox's How A24 Took Over Hollywood. Uh, Rad Wreck of the Week. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday, and like I mentioned off the top, we got a daddy deep dive dropping sometime in the next couple of weeks, so be on the lookout for that. And if you want to prep for it, once again, put the lotion on the skin um until then you can follow us and slide into our dms on instagram at baddad.raddad get a sneak peek of what we've been watching on our individual letterboxd accounts our usernames are in the show notes and we would absolutely love you forever if you share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating review or follow on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you're listening from but that's going to do it for these spider powered individuals this week <laughs> so until next time I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.